taking her books to the schoolyard. In time, the snow will rise. In time, the Lord will rise. Silent night, holy night. Silent night, bright. Silent is the last thing that I would use to describe my weekend, right? We often feel troubled. We often feel worried. And as we begin, what are we supposed to do with our hurts? What are we supposed to do with our sorrow? What are we supposed to do with the hard things in our lives during Christmas? Does the Christmas message, does Christianity, does the gospel have anything to say to people who are hurting? Sufyan is asking that question in the song. And I think that in Isaiah 9, we see an answer. We see that the real story of Christmas, the announcement of God's inbreaking to bring renewal to the world through the birth of Jesus is intended to speak exactly into our hurt. It's intended to speak into the difficulty of our life. And so as we continue the Advent reflections this morning, I want to look at this incredibly famous passage in Isaiah 9 and and consider how Christmas brings hope for the hurting. Now, we looked at Isaiah last week as well, but just by way of reminder, he is a prophet who lives in the 8th century BC, and he's speaking to the ancient Israelites, a people who were in pain and hurting and who were also about to undergo more hurt when they were sent into exile. And this in Isaiah 9 is one of the clearest, what we call messianic prophecies in all of the Old Testament. Isaiah is writing centuries before the birth of Jesus to a people who dwell in darkness, to a people who are hurting, and he's writing about the one who is to come, the Messiah. Christians have traditionally interpreted these verses as referring to Jesus. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew quotes Jesus himself saying that what was spoken by Isaiah in these verses is fulfilled in him. Now, there's so much we can say about these verses. We see that light casts away the darkness. Verse 2, we see that Jesus comes to rid this world of oppression. Verse 4, he will end the scourge of war. Verse 5, but all of those verses are really leading up to the crescendo in verse 6, where we read these four names or four titles of the coming king, of the Messiah, of Jesus. And so that's what I want us to spend some time focusing on this morning. I want us to look at these great names used of Jesus in 9-6. And hopefully as the Spirit is at work here, we will be able to see more of how Jesus' coming brings hope for the hurting. In fact, that's the main idea that I want you to take away this morning. The coming of Jesus brings hope for those who are hurting. And I want to just look at each of these names in succession. So there's four parts of the sermon this morning. If you're a note taker, you can easily see your outline there in chapter 9, verse 6. We see first that God is a wonderful counselor. He's a wonderful counselor for the hurting. Jesus is described here as a wonderful counselor. What a great way to begin the names of Jesus, this adjective, wonderful. That's a word we all know. It's meant to invoke a sense of awe a sense of grandeur. You know what's wonderful? Thursday night in San Antonio. Anybody know what happened on Thursday night? Snow. Snow in San Antonio. We spent some time outside in our front yard with the rest of our block, which almost never happens in the suburbs. But everyone was outside just 
glorying in snow. And you know what was even more glorious? Is that it was all gone by Friday afternoon. That was even better. No dirty snow. It's a wonderful thing. It was amazing. It evoked in us a sense of awe. At least it did in my family. And what we read here is that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. A counselor is someone who imparts wisdom and direction to those who are confused or lost. Isaiah is telling us that Jesus is a counselor who has exactly the kind of wisdom that we need. He gives us wonderful guidance. He's someone we can trust. He knows how to help us in our hurting. That's the meaning of the darkness light analogy there in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. People are presented there as walking in darkness as stumbling around, feeling their way, looking for something that will anchor them as they attempt to move forward in the darkness. We dwell in a land of deep darkness, but on them and on us has light shined. Here's the idea. The light of Jesus shines on those who are hurting. And given the idea of wonderful counselor, the light of Jesus shines on those who can acknowledge that they need guidance, that they need counsel. That's a really important qualifier. The counsel of our great God is available to those who see that they need it. Light is available to guide those who know deep down, if they're being honest, that they are stumbling around in the darkness on their own. Can you admit that about yourself this morning? The scriptures again and again portray humanity. It portrays each one of us as being in the darkness. Just as one example from the New Testament, Peter in 1 Peter 2 says that God, coming to know God means that he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The reason for our hurt, the hurt that we often feel in part stems from the darkness that we all live in when we walk away from and apart from God. And so receiving the wisdom and the guidance of the wonderful counselor who has come for us in the person of Jesus means acknowledging that on our own, we are in the dark, spiritually and morally. But we have a hard time with that. We don't like to acknowledge or admit need. We don't like to confess that we wander around aimlessly in the darkness and can't find our way out of it. And so what we often do is instead of admitting that we have real need and seeking God's help, we use various kinds of coping mechanisms that we can even fool ourselves into thinking are actually working. I wonder what you use. Maybe it's perfectionism. Do you know that that's a coping mechanism? Perfectionism is a coping mechanism that we use. We don't stop and we won't stop until we have things perfect because we are attempting to cope with our own inability to figure things out. Maybe you try to cope by thinking and saying to yourself that you can live independently without any real relationships. <laughs> um, you, you keep others at arm's length. You have no real friends or people who can speak into your lives and to whom you can empty your own heart. 
Maybe your coping mechanism is a substance or a device. Maybe you drink too much. Maybe you play too much Clash of Clans on the iPad. Maybe you stream Netflix endlessly night after night in an attempt to get away from the hurts. In an attempt to avoid admitting that you have need and you don't know where to turn and asking God for help. When we read that Jesus is the wonderful counselor, we should read that as an invitation. An invitation from God to each one of us to admit that on our own, we are in the dark. To stop trying to avoid it or refuse to deal with it through coping mechanisms of various kinds and to tell God, help me. Dispel the darkness in my life. You see, trusting Jesus Christ is acknowledging that we need a Savior, that we can't do it on our own. It's not more coping mechanisms we need. It's the wonderful counselor who has come to help us in our hurting. God comes to help the hurting in that he is a wonderful counselor. Secondly, we see that God is a mighty God for the hurting. Now, that might seem obvious. Of course, God is mighty. He's God, you think. Well, the word mighty here is actually a very rare word in the Hebrew language. And it has actually the connotation of the heroic. The heroic. If you look in verse 4, you read, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now that refers to another story in the Old Testament book of Judges. It's the story of Gideon. Some of you might be familiar with Gideon's story. Gideon was a normal Israelite man who was called by God to lead the Israelite army out of the oppression that the Midianites had inflicted upon them for decades at that point. And the most famous story in Gideon's life is the story where the army of Israel gathers around him as they prepare to go and do battle against the Midianites. And there's 20,000 Israelites and God appears to to, uh, Gideon and he says, this is way too many soldiers. Tell everyone who's afraid to go home. And so they lose half the army immediately from 20,000 to 10,000. And God again says, this is way too many people. We can't fight with this many people. And so more and more and more leave. And so eventually Gideon ends up with 300 troops to fight against the mighty Midianite army. And furthermore, if you read the story, they have no weapons to use in the fight. They have clay pots with lights inside. And when they go and fight against the Midianites, they take the clay pots and they smash them onto the ground, breaking them and shouting and screaming. And the Midianite army is put to flight. What's the point? Why does God, here in Isaiah 9, refer back to that story? Here's the point. God is a mighty God. God demonstrates his power to help the hurting by using what we consider to be weak and frail vessels. Look at us. Look at 9.6. To us, a child is born. A child a helpless baby. This, that's the means, that's the instrument that God uses to help people who are hurting. Listen, God shows his might and God gains glory for himself by using the least likely vessels to take us out of our hurt and our pain. What might that mean for you today? Well, perhaps we should learn 
Perhaps we should believe that God is using the moments where we feel the most weak, where we feel the most helpless to teach us to trust him and rely on his power and not our own. Maybe your moments of hurt and weakness, maybe they're not a detour from the path of renewal, but in fact, the path of hope and renewal is the path of hurt and weakness. I mean, Jesus himself came in weakness. He came as a baby. Jesus himself saves his people in a moment of supreme weakness. The cross, which Paul says is the foolishness of God. The wise and the powerful can't comprehend it because God works through our hurt. He works through our hurt to give grace and help. He shows us he's a mighty God by showing up most mightily in the moments where we feel the least mighty. Those moments where you feel helpless, those moments when you feel alone, those moments when you feel, I don't know what to do, those are the exact moments in which you should look to God and trust that he is going to care for you in his might and not in our might. Jesus shows that he's the mighty God by being born as a helpless, poor baby and then dying on a cross in shame. And following the way of Jesus, God shows us his might and his grace by taking us through hurt, by taking us through weakness, that his power and might may be furthered in our lives also. Thirdly, he will be everlasting father to the hurting. So we see God in Jesus is the counselor whose wisdom we need. God is the God whose power we need. And thirdly, he's the father whose love we need. Jesus will come and God in Jesus is to us an everlasting father. What is that saying? I love this. This is picking up on the beautiful, incredible heart of our faith. If you're a Christian, this is the heart of the gospel. If you're not a Christian or if you're not sure, you must get this. If you want to get what Christianity is all about, this, I hope, resonates deeply in our hearts. Each of us desperately need to be adopted by God. That's what will remove the hurt when we are brought into his family. And that's exactly what happens in the good news, in the gospel. Through Jesus' death, we are forgiven and brought again into God's family as adopted sons and daughters. We are brothers and sisters of Jesus and his co-heirs. And we have God as our Father. So that as Paul says in Galatians, we were able to cry out with the Holy Spirit, Abba, Father, Dad, Dad, help. And the whole story of the Bible The whole story of this world is that that is what each one of us was made for. In Genesis 1, we read that we were made in God's image. We were made to reflect him, to image him. Some of you, when your families are visiting you for the weekend, perhaps, your parents are here or your children are here, I, as a pastor, get to meet you and your relatives sometimes. And sometimes some of you will come up to me and you'll say, hey, this is my dad. Or you'll say, hey, this is my daughter. And I'll think to myself, I didn't need you to tell me that. Because it's very obvious because you look just like that person, right? I get that with my oldest all the time. People tell us, tell him, you look just like your dad. And I think, man, what a lucky kid he is. (laughs) And it's the same with each one of us. We were made to reflect and image our 
Heavenly Father. That's the basic picture of the Bible. Fathers have sons in their image. And let me tell you this. Much of our hurt in life is connected to the fact that although we were made to have God as Father, we don't, we don't know Him that way in the real day-to-day of our lives. If you're not a Christian, the reason you don't know God as Father is because you have been alienated from your Father through your own sin, through your rebellion against Him. You don't want Him as Father If you're being honest, you reject his love for you and you reject his authority over you. And the way to healing, the way to life, the way to peace is to come back to your father through repentance and through faith. It's to admit me going my own way is not working out well for me. I still have all this hurt. Like the prodigal son that Jesus talks about in Luke 15. We must realize that we're desperately lost without our father's help. Turn around and go back home. Knowing, knowing that he is welcome, to, ready to receive us with the welcome of his open embrace. If you're not a Christian, God is willing to have you in his family. He's done everything that's necessary to pardon and forgive you. And he longs to bring you his lost children home. And so perhaps today you'll hear his summons to return to him. Come back, back to the family where grace is found. If you are a Christian, if you believe that was true of yourself and you've trusted Jesus, you've come back into God's family. Listen, you still, we all still struggle to relate to God as a father. Remnants of sin continue to tarnish our view of him. To tarnish our view of him as our father who loves us. And our failures to believe this cause us deep hurt in every way. In fact, in a place like San Antonio, we can often use our religion and religiosity as a way to get away from God instead of going to God. You know, religion is a potentially dangerous and spiritually devastating thing because it can be used as a tool to keep God at arm's length for your entire life. Some of you might be able to tell me, I've been going to church every week since I was two years old, pastor. I've been baptized. I read my Bible every day. I pray. I memorize scripture. I don't even have Santa Claus in my front yard. I have a nativity scene in my front yard. Santa Claus is bowing down to Jesus in my front yard. So I am good to go. I'm holy. The nutcracker's bowing down before little baby Jesus in the nativity scene. I'm set. So many of us grew up around the Bible. We know the Christmas story, but we don't see, we don't see God as a father. We see him as a judge. We see him as a traffic cop out to get us. And because of that, in many ways, we're ashamed of him. In many ways, we want to avoid relating to him in that way. So many of us, even if we're followers of Jesus in our worst moments, we're like, you know, not to be hard on our teenagers, but we're like a 14-year-old. You ever seen a 14-year-old, you know, walking in a mall or maybe along the river walk with his or her parents? And uh, the 14-year-old is trying to keep as far away as possible from his parents, right? I don't want to anyone to know that that person is related to me. I don't know you, stranger. Get away from me. And so the teenager will be, you know, 25 steps ahead or 25 steps behind the rest of the family as they're walking along. 
Friends, we're, we're so often those teenagers in our spiritual lives. Rather than delight in God, we are ashamed of God and ashamed of his love. We don't care for his concern for us. We don't want time with him. We all have, we all have remnants of prodigality. Remnants of the prodigal wandering of our former days in our souls. And listen, here's what the gospel says. Part of the way to experience healing of your hurts is to know that God loves you as a father. Some of you have never really felt loved by the Lord as if he is your father. Have you? That is the pathway to hurts being healed. God is always like this for us. He is the everlasting father. He will never change in his affection for you, in his love for you, in his embrace of you through Jesus. And so much, so much of the pain and hurt we experience comes through the disconnect that we have in our lives from acknowledging that that is true with our lips and yet failing to live in that reality in our hearts. But God is in Jesus, our everlasting father. He's the counselor whose wisdom we need, the mighty God whose strength we need, the Father whose love we need. And then finally, we see there fourthly that God is the Prince of Peace for the hurting. Jesus comes, famous verse, right, as the Prince of Peace. Now, how jaded can we be about that verse? I mean, Miss Universe, a friend tells me, I've never watched that, but friends tell me that, you know, when Miss Universe is asked, what is it that you most, most want this Christmas? What do they always say? World peace. Peace on earth. And we think, give me a break. Peace on earth, are you serious? It, it almost sounds trite. But Jesus will actually bring it. That's what this text says. Jesus won't bring a fake peace. Like so many of the peace treaties we see on the world stage. Or maybe more importantly, like so many of the relationships that we have, where there is a very unsteady truce for the time being, but war could erupt again at any moment. Jesus will bring real peace. Jesus will bring peace that lasts. And the reason that he can do that is because God has already dealt with the cause of all war and accusation and fighting at the cross. God has already judged the sin of this world in Jesus at the cross. And so now, in Christ, we are empowered to live in peace, to live in shalom with others, as Jesus himself has ushered in peace for us. So many of us are hurting because we don't really have peace. We squabble with family members. We don't like our spouses. We have all kinds of tension at work. We don't even have peace in our own hearts and minds. We're like a nation divided in our own selves. But Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ will heal the hurting of disunion and discord and division. Isaiah looks forward to Jesus' coming in these verses. And we know now, in hindsight, that Jesus really does bring peace for the hurting in the gospel. Jesus walked through the valley of the shadow of death and came through the other side to bring us peace. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that God will never have to forsake us for our rebellion against him. So that we will never have to cry out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus was forsaken and not us. Because Jesus was forsaken, we are embraced. Does anybody here believe that? 
We are found in Christ and therefore we are secure with God. Jesus brings real peace to the hurting. What great verses these are. What great names given to Jesus here. They all have their yes and their amen in him as the New Testament teaches us. We read that Jesus is the light of the world. He's the wonderful counselor for the hurting. He says that he will set you free and we will be free indeed. He's the mighty God for the hurting. Jesus says he will not leave us as orphans, but he will come to us. He's the everlasting father for the hurting. Jesus says, my peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I have overcome the world. He is the prince of peace for the hurting. Do you see Jesus as that? Are you a part of what he offers you at Christmas? He has come. The gift is free. Your hurting will end. May we all believe that. Let's pray.